0: week in the books and I'm back 138 days into the Writers Guild of America strike here in California. We are now almost 40 days longer than the strike in 2008 and it's really starting to get wild in terms of creatives trying to figure out how they will continue to thrive and survive without their livelihood. I personally think it is high time for both Mayor Karen Bass and Governor Gavin Newsom to step in. And if you're wondering why I'm highlighting this today, it's because it's related to our topic. We're going to talk about creatives and theater arts and education. But given how close to home this writer's strike hits, I want to continue to keep that in people's minds and keep those who are trying to figure out how they're going to make rent checks. Mortgage payments, car notes, you know, wishing them the best. It is is—it is particularly crazy because you see in the news quotes from some of the studio heads. So, for example, David Zasloff, who's head of Warner Brothers Discovery, he is the CEO. He's had quotes in Fortune Magazine this week talking about how the projection is that his studio will be down $500 million because of this strike. An astronomical number to most, but given that the revenues for the studio have been in the billions, I guess that for him, that is a hit that he can take to avoid paying actors. I wonder how long he will continue to be able to do that. And again, the focus today is going to be on theater arts, so let me pivot because. The writer strike is one of those examples of the tension between increasing automation in all fields and the role that the human touch will play in the future. And I personally believe that the arts is one of those areas that will survive because I don't care how great the computers get, you can't imitate, mimic, the soul and the heart and the creativity put together that a human puts into the craft of writing or acting. So yes, you may be able to slap an AI-generated face on an actor so that you have you know, a likeness, but that does not mean you have replaced the performance itself. So I am a huge proponent of arts education, I think that it is something that really can help schools be better. And so I'm going to start out there today talking about some of those ways that if you invest in theater arts in the same ways that many schools and colleges, for that matter, invest in STEM, for example. STEM's been a big buzzword now for probably the last decade. As we think about, again, automation and how we can prepare students to be better candidates for a more digitized world. But at the same time, I feel like there are things that the arts do that allow for schools to be stronger because in schools you wanna have as many people, many students certainly in the building and at the table as possible. And the arts provide many ways to do that. So I was actually encouraged in doing some research prior to today's episode to read about California's Proposition 28. And Prop 28 here in California basically guarantees that 1% of the state general fund will be set aside for music and arts education. So for this budget year, that is looking to be about $941 million, which will provide for about 15,000 jobs across the state, which in and of itself there's something to be happy about, something to clap about, Any anytime that you can make sure people are going to work. And that is a good thing. And so what this hopefully builds a runway for, for me, is that you have programs in a time when content is king. Everybody's a creative. Anybody who has a phone now has the opportunity to be a creative. Anybody who buys a $50 mic like the one I'm speaking into, has the opportunity to be creative. So given that that we have those opportunities now at, the, at our fingertips and so readily, why not continue to push that, infuse that into the curriculum? So again, you have more students excited to go into school. So many schools, their funding is based on attendance. If you have strong arts programs that are making students, inspiring students to want to come to school, then that is a good thing right off the bat. The second thing that I wanna highlight in terms of the benefit of the arts is that you have more opportunities for community. You know, so many schools, particularly high schools, you know, find their community around, you know, sports where in the fall, so Friday night lights and Friday night football are huge pieces of many, many communities But when you augment those sports, for example, with a strong band, think how many people, more people, are now involved in the action. How many more families are coming to the game because they want to see not only number 56, you know, sack the quarterback, or number seven throw a touchdown, but they want to see, you know, Johnny play the tuba at halftime or, you know, Susie, March out on the field with a clarinet and see, you know, how they spell out the team name. In the black community, clearly, HPCUs, halftime at a football game, is almost more important in the game sometimes because you want to see the band. North Carolina Central was just out here recently. can imagine that was a treat for everyone. If you go to a USC game, storied marching band. Ohio State, storied marching band. So the arts create an additional opportunity for a community because you bring more people into the tent. And that's just the performing arts in terms of music. So in schools, not just the band, but you have the choir. You know, how many of us, like myself, were in a choir when they were young? And again, you find community. Fortunately for me, my voice broke the wrong way and my tenor career was over. But the choir becomes an opportunity for a community. The symphony becomes opportunity for a community. The jazz band, if you have it, becomes an opportunity for a community. And then you have the visual arts. So again, in these times, when you can make a real living creating content for the web, imagine if some of that Prop 28 money here in California was used to build animation programs, broadcasting programs, my place just built a whole podcasting studio and now it has a social media team. So we're starting to see where schools are thinking creatively about how you can involve students in what gets them excited today. And then formally, finally, excuse me, you have you know, the visual artists, the painters, the ceramic creators, who also benefit when you invest in the arts and can find ways to not only be tied to the school, but also lay the groundwork for real careers. Again, yes, you can you can pull up apps these days and generate graphics on AI, but it's still not gonna replace the creativity of the human mind when it comes to graphic design, layout, and all these other arts-based professions. And so I wanted to lay that all out because, again, oftentimes when schools start thinking about cutting budgets, they say, oh, well, we have to, you know, stick to the core courses. We have to stick to the courses that we test on, again, for our funding. So our English and our math, we have to make sure we protect those. And then the arts and somehow PE get tossed to the side, cut as if they are not necessary. But again, I hope you hear the argument that they're greatly necessary. It was also sad to read in doing the research that California had gotten to a place where only one in five, prior to Prop 28, one in five high schools had a full-time arts and music program. Whereas in a peer city like New York, that number was four out of five high schools. So again, I'm happy to read and hear that there is money coming for California to close that gap. Because in addition to arts boosting school programs in-house, there's also ways that arts programs can be helpful to the school in general and bring in revenue. Again, lots of schools rely on their sports. Booster programs support the sports. booster programs could also support the arts in a way that brings money back into the school so imagine if you're a school district that is blessed to have a nice theater at the high school and you have your fall and spring theatrical productions you have your music productions you have your you know arts exhibitions those are all things that can generate revenue for the school based on arts and then can add on to Whatever is brought in by sports it doesn't just have to be about the sports. So let me stop there, catch my breath for a second, and then talk about what happens if schools don't have that. How can you get that arts fix? We'll be right back. Just pay All right, so laid out my case for why I'm a fan of the arts. Made my plea. I did want to add one more benefit to arts programs when it comes to that all-important college application. Involvement in the arts only strengthens your application, may provide a hook for you to land at a desired school. Schools don't just take into account those who come into their you know, arts and sciences programs and their, you know, pre-business, pre-professional programs. There are many schools that have specialized arts programs. So if you have been someone who's developed a talent, a skill, your college application can become stronger. But I also wanted to talk about, you know, where can you go? Where can you go if you are in one of these cash strapped school districts that unfortunately does not have the arts in the first place you know i recommend is the church you know if you are a person of faith and attend your local church regularly they often have arts programs again my choir career started in the children's choir white rock baptist church in philly my arts career continued participating in many an easter and christmas celebration having to make sure to learn my bible verses for the christmas christmas play so the church often has opportunities to feed the artistic skills because they are indeed skills as much as you might learn in the english classroom It's the arts that often provide that opportunity to learn a skill like speaking in front of people, having the confidence to stand in front of a room and deliver and present, you know, and prepare, memorize. These are all skills that certainly come in handy no matter what profession you end up in. We talked about community. There's also connections to learning. Those who, you know, really take to music, there's correlation in data and research that shows you know, how much better they end up doing in math because of the counting and the reading and the type of brain connections that you have to make. So the arts are things that are separate from your core courses. They are tied to, in a very specific way, achievement in those courses as well. So you can go to the church. Church often has arts programs both during school year and in the summertime. There's also arts groups. So here in LA, I think about, of course, the legendary Debbie Allen Dance Academy. You know, her hot chocolate nutcracker program produces, you know, literally millions of dollars during the holiday season when they put that show up. So when it comes to dance, that is, that is a that's an avenue that's almost second to none. Lula Washington also comes to mind. You know, there are those who participate on the, excuse me, Amazing Grace Conservatory You know, when it comes to acting and singing. So there are these types of groups that are all around no matter where you live. just takes a little bit of a research and digging. And the internets are very good at providing that information. And then finally, and probably most simply, Think about that creative friend you have who's into, whether it's the visual arts, the musical, performing arts. I've never met a creative who didn't want to share their talent, particularly with young people. So I think of our friend B.K. Lynn, who was our oldest son's first guitar teacher. I'm sure many of us have friends in our village who, you know, would be willing to share their talent with a young one and give them that experience. So those are just a couple things that I thought of when it comes to solutions, when there are none readily available in school. So we've got a special guest today. I'm going to get into that interview in a moment on the other side of this break. Just 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 All right, so I am very lucky today to have an office hours a man I've come to know and respect, and we're going to get to in a second just how unique he is, but just some credits off of his illustrious resume, both as actor. Uh, performer writer producer all of the things you may have heard of a show called queen sugar you may have heard of a show called the blacklist you may have even had heard of a show called bel-air this man has had an integral part in all of those productions and many many more so we welcome to taking notes to dr john carroll mr anthony excuse me doctor because we
1: recognize <laughs> her here
0: dr anthony sparks how are you sir welcome
1: Thank you for having me. I am doing well. Thank you, Dr. J.C., as I like to call you. Um, I am excited to be here and talk with you today. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. It is a, it is
0: a pleasure. And you know, as I tell the people who come on, because they are family, they are people that I like, they are people that I enjoy conversing with, um, I hope this is not the last time that we could do this. This is just the beginning you know, oh. of this type of relationship. So here's where I want to start because you are you know, a historian of many, many things. So in thinking about talking to you, one of the things I realize is I can't think of a person who comes from the performing background that you have, particularly being in Stomp yes, and then yes. rising to the level you are now as writer, exec producer, showrunner. Is there someone that you could think of who was the comp? of what you are currently?
1: (laughs) Wow, (laughs) you you started me off with a big question. Of Um, course. I will say in terms of, you know, the sort of the three legs thus far of my life and career, which is, you know, performer, actor, writer, producer, showrunner, and also, you know, a scholar, you know, in terms of the- Yes, yes. I, I don't necessarily know someone, especially who looks like me as a brother, who has the exact credentials that I have and, you know, and put all those three pieces together. But I do know that most of the creative people and artists that I love and admire are also incredibly smart, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. very, very smart, very, very smart people. So whether or not they actually have you know, PhDs like you and I you know, possess or not is almost irrelevant to the fact that the people that I get down with and who seem to want to get down with me as I was a young actor and a young writer developing were people who were whip smart, who thought, hey, young man, I think you got a lot going on. Don't place limits on yourself. And I've been a beneficiary of people always encouraging me to embrace all aspects of myself as opposed to putting myself in one little small box. Love
0: that. A gracious answer from Dr. Sparks, as I would come to expect. But I love it. So that's our start. Now I want to take you backwards a little bit. um okay. towns finest, right? Uh, yes. Whitney, Whitney Young High School.
1: The Dolphins. That's right.
0: Home of the <laughs> Dolphins which yes. seems a, little, a little misplaced for Chicago, but all right. You know, I'm sure there's a story.
1: I'm sure there's a story. Yeah, well, dolphins are the the one of the smartest uh, mammals around. So. There you go. So there, <laughs>
0: there, it, there it is. So here's what I, I want
1: I think the phrase was, even a shark doesn't mess with a dolphin.
0: Ah, there you go. There you go. A... I'm curious for you, given what you just said and your answer, how does the theater and the academics and all of it come together for you um at whitney young or is it before like how does that all come together because one of the things that i lament when i look at public education across the nation is yeah. that one of the first things to go when we start tightening
1: the financial belt is yes. the performing arts in particular it, it, it is and it's a, and and it's and it's a tragedy and a mistake as far as i'm concerned because I I think the goal of our education, most educators would say, is that you got to meet students where they are, right? In order to grow them to where you want them to be. And if you're going to cut off the arts, you've cut off, I don't know, a third, a half, (laughs) you know, maybe more of your student body, whom you could reach in a deep and profound way through the arts. And if you say, well, that's just extraneous, you know, that's extra then you've said that those students are disposable without maybe necessarily meaning to say that, but that's that's how I feel about it. For me, in terms of my journey, in terms of the arts, you know, um, I was first introduced to performing actually in the black church. So my brother, who's now a pastor and a minister uh, on the South side of Chicago, I was always sort of tucked up under his arm when uh, i was growing up like literally my brother's name is richard people at the church called me little richard (laughs) because everywhere he went i was there with him and so my first introduction was seeing christmas pageants and and easter pageants or programs as we called it and you know doing plays that my brother wrote you know or that someone else wrote or these dramatizations of bible stories so it was things like that so when i think back on my approach as a creative person as an artist as a writer now a lot of it is informed by the fact that i was introduced to performing alongside um something that people consider sacred and community black community specifically so that's where it started with me trying to recite James Well Johnson's "The Creation" when I was in fifth grade or sixth grade, you know, uh, you know, and messing it up and starting over and and stuff like that. That's where it started. It began to become a oh my god, could this be a professional pursuit at Whitney Young High School in Chicago, middle school and high school. Uh, we did an eighth grade play. That was the first time I'd done a real play with sets and everything. I had a smaller part, but, you know, I got bit by the bug. It was like, oh, I'm going to walk out on stage and people going to applaud for me. Like, yes, more of this, please, you know, <laughs> right? And by the time I was in ninth grade, I was... Part of a group of kids who actually started an alternative theater company at Whitney Young. There was a drama club, and then, but we were too cool for school. We want to be in that drama club. We wanted our own drama club. So we started our own drama club called The Company, which is now Whitney Young's official drama club, (laughs) all of these many years later, actually. And I became one of the quote unquote founding fathers as a ninth grader of this drama club, who was led by a man who was a Vietnam vet. Ooh. Okay. all right and Whitney Young is a wonderfully diverse high school even more so probably then but even at that time there were these little silos mm-hmm. you had Latinx students in baseball you had black students in football you had white students in tennis there were only a few spaces that were truly 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 integrated and our theater company was one of those primary spaces. So I come to the arts, having thought a lot about this, about why I'm oriented towards creative work the way that I am. I come to it as a space that uh, is powerful in the sense that it could even be spiritual sometimes. I come to it as a space of community that not only could affirm you know, what I look like and my community of Black folks, but also had the power to draw all kinds of people together. So I am a person who, when I see an arts organization that is exclusionary, I'm offended to my core. Like I don't get it. Like the whole point is to pull people together <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. And that's sort of how I came to it. So I just started doing place after place after place of the play at Whitney Young. And now what was good for me also about that was I, Whitney Young is this rigorous, you know, public magnet, selective admissions by testing high school, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, That school has had as much, if not more, effect on me and my life and formation as any college or degree that I have, like, hands down. Um, And when I got to that school, from my neighborhood school, being blessed and fortunate to test into that school, I was no longer the smartest person around. I came there as the neighborhood nerd who was real good at, you know, all the academics. I did not know I was an artist at that time. Not being the smartest person in the school, quote unquote, by, you know, GPA freed me. Because I didn't have to be that kid anymore and I could explore other interests. And that's actually how I got on the road to becoming creative and being an artist and a writer and a writer. I
0: love it. I love it. There was so much there. Now, Whitney Young, clearly a big influence. But then you went on and got not one, not two, but three degrees from (laughs) the University of Southern California. We're going to put costs aside. What was the value add in continuing such a path of academics to what you'd already established now as
1: a creative, someone who wanted to be, you know, in yeah. the creative world, well, you know, it started out in theater, 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 theater. And for me, theater meant not just the performing aspects. this is, this especially started to open up once I got to USC. It also meant the literary aspects. So at the time, I was um very blessed and fortunate that by the time I got ready to go to college, apply to colleges, I had then been exposed to theater programs, both at Northwestern University in the summertime and their program called the National High School Institute, AKA the Cherubs program. Um, So I'm a proud Cherub alumni. And also I did a program at Carnegie Mellon University um, right before my senior year in their pre-college drama program. And Northwestern University and Carnegie Mellon are two high powered, just like USC, Uh, drama schools and so what was happening was I was finding out that people thought I was really good at this at the the highest sort of collegiate level so that by the time I was a senior in high school September of my senior year Carnegie Mellon had accepted me as an incoming freshman for college by the time I was a senior year by the time I was in my September at the beginning of my senior year which was a huge confidence they accepted me out of the they accepted me at the end of the summer program Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. accepted me and five other students some of whom's name whose names you would know now like gabriel mock star of suits Mm. buddy at that program and was actually from here in los angeles from beverly hills like and you know uh, other friends of ours who i won't name but they accepted five of us out of 150 of us at the end of that program. And I was one of those five. So it gave me a tremendous boost going into my senior year because they have one of the top rated drama programs in the country, especially for undergrads. So that's how I went to my senior year. You couldn't tell me nothing. I was like on fire. Right. I was like, but I also needed to, because I come from a family with, um, You know, we didn't have a lot of money. We didn't have any money, actually. Um, I still had to play the field, so to speak, so I could get the best offers possible. And ultimately, the best offer um, came from USC. And that is where I chose to go. So by the time I show up at USC, I'm this very committed actor. Um, But I was also writing at that time, but it was a very sort of private pursuit that people didn't know about. But at USC at that time, one of the things they were doing was they were just basically baptizing you in all of this dramatic literature. So in addition to the acting training, you had all of these dramatic literature courses and dramatic analysis courses. And I really liked that stuff. I loved digging into plays and figuring out what the playwright meant and and all that other stuff, ostensibly to help you be a better actor. But at the time I didn't know it. But at the time, I was also clearly being trained on dramatic structure that went beyond being an actor and that's kind of where it started and i started getting sometimes frustrated by the time i was a junior i was doing well and being cast a lot but i wasn't being cast a lot as me meaning as a as a a black character Mm -hmm. all this european based stuff and i was good at it and it was great but i began to feel like something was missing and so obviously i started diving more into black plays but there wasn't as much of an opportunity to do them. So I then started putting up Black plays myself at USC outside of the regular curriculum to sort of feed that part of me. And I would say that that was really the beginning of me also starting to think about writing, actually as Mm -hmm. well, this notion of, if you don't see it, build it sort of idea. I was
0: about to say, am I crazy to believe that your experience building the company Mm-hmm. led you to believe well I did it in high school I yeah. might as well go ahead and do it again it don't matter where I am I've done this before
1: yeah you know it's so that's a really great thing you're pulling together I certainly had not thought about it at that time but I did I was very I was highly energetic when I was younger <laughs> and <laughs> I I had a lot of energy like it was like like you know you know I I I had a lot of energy
0: <laughs> well to be in <laughs> stomp it would, it would <laughs> Seem, you would need a lot of energy. It
1: yeah, stop. Good. I sort of finally burned off all that excess energy that I have doing that show seven, eight times a week, you know, and uh, and getting the knee surgeries that ended up coming along with doing that show. <laughs> but yeah, so, but, you know, back to the college piece. Yeah, I, it was, ex- that's exactly right. I had a notion of um maybe entrepreneurship is too strong a word, but I had a notion of you can also create some things that don't already exist. Did it in high school with a bunch of other people and forming the company. And then uh, at USC, I didn't necessarily form a company, but I did start going, hey, this play, Dutchman by Amiri Baraka, nobody's going to, you know, produce this play on the official season. I want to do this play. Give me a theater. Let me go find a director. Let me go find a co-star and let's do this play. And we would, you know, so things like that. And um, I think that sort of start drop into me a little bit, the idea that I would not for my entire life just be an actor for hire. Mm -hmm. Even by the time I graduated, as driven as I was to be an actor, I just sort of knew. um, I remember reading this book where Sir Derek Jacobi from England said that um, on some level actors are beggars because you're always walking around looking for somebody to give you the part to let you do your art. And while I don't, I, I love actors. I married an actor. Um, I don't think of them as beggars, especially not today, where so many are so uh, many are so self sufficient uh, and self generating in their work. It did let me know, oh, you better come at this thing with more than one iron in the fire if you want to stick around for a while.
0: And that that's a great segue because I'm curious your thoughts on the way that creatives of today find and discover the calling and and develop love of craft, which it yeah. sounds like you developed in a number of different ways, both by being immersed in plays and also, like you say, baptized into academic literature. What are your thoughts on how creatives do that today, given all the tools at their disposal? We definitely grew up in a time where we didn't have yeah. TikTok yeah. and the social media and all the things. So how do you see that playing into the journey for young people today?
1: I see it as a, I see it as a as overall an incredibly powerful thing i do think it's a little bit of a double-edged sword um, because alongside the tools they're also growing up in a culture that has a lot of things we you know like reality tv um, and stuff like that and that tends to cheapen the notion of what a tv show is i think Uh, cheapen the notion of what it is to become famous you can become famous now just for being a personality And that can take you to a certain point. But when you start wanting to work with people who have real craft and have spent years honing that craft, they don't care nothing about the fact that you are a star from reality TV. I'm not saying whether they should or shouldn't, but they don't. Mm -hmm. They care about craft. And if they're considering you at all, it's from the business aspect of the fact that perhaps the profile you built up in reality TV might lend itself to getting a green light on a certain type of project. But the project that's gonna be greenlit because there's a reality TV star in it is typically um, not a project that serious artists take seriously. I didn't make the rules, that's what it is. So you, you really do want to hone your craft if what you're trying to have, I think, is a career and not a moment. And the thing about social media and reality TV and stuff is that it lends itself with its short attention span and how things can go viral to people creating moments. And then where people get challenges when they try to take those moments that they had in social media and turn them into a career. And they find out that it wasn't quite the shortcut that they thought it was going to be. Mm -hmm. Because the people that you're trying to work with Who take their craft seriously they want to work with other people who appear to take their craft seriously and so um you know maybe i should make a delineation because i I started off talking about the tools iphones youtube Mm -hmm. so in that way it's great because you can get your work out there right in a way that you know, I started out writing one-man shows, one-man plays, to showcase myself as a writer and as a performer. If I were coming along today, I don't know if I would do that. I would probably do a web series. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, you know, I would, you know, you know, take the Issa Rae route. Mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm. Not that that's so easy to do because right. many people tried it, and there's still only one Issa Rae. Right. <laughs> you know, but. Um, But that would be a way to get your work out there, you know, to uh, more people more quickly. I just think that while we have access, young people have access to these tools, they should also be making uh, sure that they are working on their craft so that when you get attention and when someone brings you to the table, you have something to say and a facility with which to say it, as opposed to being a one trick pony who did that funny uh, three-minute TikTok once well you can't do a three-minute TikTok but that one you know three minute that one
0: TikTok that people remember
1: <laughs> yeah that one TikTok so like okay once we've all watched that TikTok for 30 seconds what next and right, that's right. where craft comes in you know
0: yeah and I love that you speak of craft because one of you know my favorite shows that you've been involved in uh Queen Sugar was this chock full of people with yeah. all kinds of crap. Like I, I was tempted to you know, run down the names, but like yes. the ensemble, like I'm just gonna say that the ensemble
1: yeah. all
0: clearly care about the crap and it lends to the quality of the show. But that aside, I'm curious again, cause this is your interview. What is it when you go into a project like that mm-hmm. um, that you want people to leave with you know it was already a unique world and that we're talking about a black family that's based in farming we don't really see that you know stories of the south aren't always based in you know a a a contemporary moment that you know these these period pieces so what do you try to leave people with in a project like that or when you go into bel-air or things like that what is it that you know you're trying to do when you approach a project and and make it memorable because i think queen sugar will definitely be something That will stand the test of time.
1: Yes. I mean, and ultimately Queen Sugar is, um, to be, I guess, a little bit simple about it, is a family drama Mm -hmm. with a bunch of beautiful Black people in it. Mm -hmm. But also the beauty is in their sort of the fact that they're rather ordinary people, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of those characters. And what we were trying to highlight on Queen Sugar was the sort of epic drama that happens in everyday life in everyday lives of people, everyday lives of Black people. Now, that show gets real specific because it's specifically located in the South in Louisiana, Mm -hmm. and it is also tied to um, sugarcane farming, a very specific thing that people do uh, in the South or used to do, I should say, to make a living. And so what we were doing was trying to bring to bear what is the weight of that history when because when you start talking about black people black families and land and farming and money and wealth that all starts to like there's a whole history there that we had to literally unearth Uh to show the impact of that macro history on this micro family and once we sort of figured out the intersection of those two that's why that show could go for seven seasons because um it's not, you know, if we were going around pitching that show, if Oprah Winfrey hadn't seen, hey, there's a there's a show here, I don't know that you could have sold that show in a room. Black Sugarcane Farmers, that's the show. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Like, hey, sir, thank you very uh-huh. much. <laughs> you know, don't let the door hit you on your way out. I'm not sure you could have sold that. But because she had the power and the vision to see that there was a show there, we as a writing staff were really able to dig into that. Um, and find that intersection between history and family. And so we are all sort of a, we all exist within the context of the history that's around us and that came before us, right? Mm-hmm you don't necessarily think about that day-to-day as you're going on you know with your day-to-day errands you know taking your kids to school whatever it is but that history is there and so that show became a really really great example of showing how um the history the context of the history around us impacts us in a very in an everyday way and you don't have to be a superstar in order to have that show up in your life so the thing i want people to take away from that show Is that our everyday lives have meaning and are valuable. And I think that that's a powerful statement when you're talking about, quote unquote, everyday Black folk. Mm -hmm. And I love that. It's been exceptional. Always.
0: always And we've always
1: had people who do exceptional. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you froze up a
0: little bit there. Oh, there you go, you're back.
1: Oh, okay. We celebrate the exceptional uh, people among us uh, as an American culture, but also within the black community. And we should do that. But we also have to celebrate um, the victory of what it is to live as a, quote unquote, everyday black person and how victorious it is to live a successful life in that regard, given our history.
0: Yeah, and I was going to say that to to wrap up and put a bow on it, you know, that history that we both understand and come to learn when we seek to learn it and then understand how we are also at the same time making history, you know, and building towards the future. um, Certainly something that, you know, I strive for as an educator on the daily, you know, again, I'm sure you impart that to the students you come with, you come in contact with, and then these projects that you're involved with. So I thank you for sharing that, Dr. Sparks, because Again, our, our young people need to understand it. The world yeah. writ large needs to understand it. And, you know, you're putting it out there for us all to see. I hope you get back to work sooner than later.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah. You, you know, yeah.
0: I'm with you fighting the good fight, you know, for the Absolutely. W-G-A, WGA, excuse me.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, because, yeah, what you do is is not to be trivialized and taken over by
1: uh, AI. So. it it is not it's not i do not want ai writing my black history (laughs) not at all not at all well again sir like i said
0: i hope we get to do this again soon talk about many other things that we intersect on um and we'll, we'll pick it up then
1: okay thank you so much for having me dr jc always appreciate you thank you great interview with dr sparks i appreciated
0: his time and all of the gems he dropped for us but let's quickly get into who needs to come into the dean's office this week And we're going to start with Jan Wenner, the co-founder of Rolling Stone magazine, who this week found himself no longer on the board of directors for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. After a recent interview was published by the New York Times in which he indicated that female musicians and black artists in particular were not among the masters in the music genre, saying that they just weren't that articulate, weren't that deep. And so if you're going to have a bias that big, you do not need to be in a gatekeeping position at the rock and roll hall of fame, which should tell the historic story of those who have been among the best musicians of all time. Some may call this cancel culture. I instead call it proper accountability. Mr. Winner to the Dean's office, please. On the honor roll this week, I want to give a salute to fellow Germantown friends, alum Kristen Welker, who assumed the lead facilitator role on Sunday's Meet the Press 70 years after the show was originated by the founding facilitator, Martha Roundtree. Ms. Welker had a massive interview in her first timeout landing the former president, Donald Trump, handling herself with the professionalism, preparedness that has become trademarked in her journalism as she's been doing it on the local and national level for many years now. So congratulations and salute to Kristen Welker. That is it for this week. Another great interview in the books look forward to checking back in next week with you on Taking Notes with Dr. John Carroll. The views expressed by John Carroll and his guest in the preceding podcast are solely that of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers, companies, or other associated parties.
1: Hey! Okay.